calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Hi, I'm Keegan. And I'm Madigan. And you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist. This is a podcast where we explore the world through our own personal feminist perspectives. We explore the world? Explore, well, because I (laughs) I was literally going to say we examine the world, and I was like, that still works, but that's not what we say every time. That's not the spiel. I really feel like this becomes more challenging. You could have just thrown a wrench in that motherfucker. I feel like it becomes more challenging every episode. Why is that? It should be easier. I feel like I say it a lot. Like, whenever I describe the show, that's just, like, what comes out. But then why is it second nature when we're describing the show to other people, but whenever we have to do this for the show, it's so hard. Probably it feels so forced. Ugh, okay. It's so, like, this is our theme. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> hey. Okay. Well, anyway, hello. Hi. What's up? So, October is Disability Awareness Month. Tis. And... We have a lot of other things planned for October. Yes, we do. But we still wanted to kind of get this in close to Disability Awareness Month. So this will come out, this episode, the Monday before October. We're almost at the end of September. Yes. How crazy. I know. So we are going to kick off October with some good old uh, women who are disabled feminists. Yes. And we're going to talk about ableism and some statistics and all that fun stuff. Right, because I really feel like people have very little concept of what ableism actually is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that I did whenever that word started kind of being thrown around on the internet. Yeah. I was kind of confused, and I guess that's probably a little bit of my uh, privilege showing there. Definitely, and I read some really great things preparing for this episode that we're going to get to. And Do you want to start with info, or do you want to go into the info after we've talked about it? Do you mind if we start with it? I don't mind at all. Okay, so ableism uh, in the dictionary is discrimination in favor of able-bodied people. Yes. It's a set of taught practices and subconscious or conscious behaviors against people with disabilities and illnesses, which assumes that able is the norm Mm -hmm. and people who have disabilities must either strive to fit that norm or keep their distance from people who are able. Ableism often sees disability as an error of life, a wrong way to live, and therefore often negates any life experience of the disabled. 
Yeah, I read a really interesting article that somebody wrote for BuzzFeed called The Politics of Being Me. Her name is Lucy Webster, and she has cerebral palsy. And she uh, is she got like a some sort of major in politics and Mm -hmm. got really into feminism and started learning about intersectionality and all these things and has started relating feminism to her life as a disabled woman. And she started to see, you know, where people will call her abnormal or different and they would assume that she couldn't do things. She started to respond to that by saying, um, so feminism showed her how to respond to people labeling her as abnormal or assuming she can't do things by asserting my humanity and being proud of my differences, she said. Mm -hmm. And she said, feminism showed me like being a woman or person of color, being disabled is not a condition, it's an identity. So instead of looking down on herself for having a disability um just seeing it as who she is and as an identity and she talks a lot about um sexuality Mm -hmm. how like you know when she she said she went to a very like liberal all-girls school and like she just never she was too scared to ask the questions so she just never did she just assumed that she couldn't be sexual you know and it wasn't until she was like 19 that she spoke with friends and had like real conversations same thing with motherhood you know people talk about a family and motherhood and she goes I don't even know what that would look like for me people look down upon that and like right well I think that this and I'll talk about this more when we talk about uh, my pick for our badass disabled lady um, later in this episode but I think so much of it is not the fault if, if we want to use that word of the disability itself it's the way that society has reacted to exactly. the disability and the way that we've conditioned people with disabilities to believe about their disabilities well, and I feel like it's also so taboo where it's just not talked about you're supposed to pretend that it's not there well you know they're other I mean? they're almost like asexual beings yeah. that, that don't exist on the same plane as yeah. able-bodied quote-unquote people to me you it know? kind of seems like you know when I was growing up it was a big thing to say like oh I'm color blind I don't see color you know what I mean mm-hmm. Where, to me that's kind of like deleting something that's there and is an identity and is important to talk about the differences right where it's the same thing to me where I see like that with their otherness it's also just you're not supposed to point out the disability or if you are it's in a way that's condescending yeah. you know what I mean even if you mean well you can yeah. mean well but still like this is so many times you treat disabled grown adults as if they're children or as if there's, you know, you look down upon them in a way. And I feel like it's conditioned into most people, even most good people believe that, you know? Let's think about the lack of representation that's out there. Yes. I mean, even more so than people of color is the lack of visibility that that people with disabilities have yes i presenting them as normal people not as like something to be gawked at yeah yeah or having it be this super inspiring heroic story or it's just it's just a person you know and i think if i'm thinking off the top of my head of two instances that they had done a a fairly good job at this one of them i think is kind of glee what's his name that's on the show it's arnie archie yeah i can't remember what his name was it's one of those two there was a story like line for him but he even talks about you know being in love with someone and they always just kind of see him as whatever because they don't see him as being a love interest right it was really handled in a in a really human way yeah. that storyline and then I really love the show mom and there is a guy on a, in a wheelchair mm-hmm. for that show too who's the love interest of but, one of the main characters but you know what I would say for at least the glee instance I don't really know for mom because I don't watch that show uh-huh and that actor is great and amazing, and I saw him in interviews, and I actually I really appreciate him. But 
I really feel like, especially living in L.A., we need to get to the point where we feel comfortable hiring disabled actors. Oh, definitely. <laughs> no, the guy, the guy who plays the role on Mom is like a is a very recognizable actor who mm-hmm. does not have a disability. I think it's the same thing when we talk about actors who play transgendered people. Right. I mean, know? and I can understand, and please don't at me about this because I understand the, the how it's problematic, but as an actor, I totally get the wanting to stretch yourself Definitely. and and absorb into different experiences that are not your own. I understand right. that but as I've, an actor, but there are so many people for whom their dream is to be an actor. And yeah. I feel like taking that... And feel that, like they can't do it because mm-hmm. of their disability. And I think that we're getting into an age where, yes, you should be able to stretch yourself, but instead of looking to stretch ourselves to play different ethnicities, different abilities, different things like that, I feel like we can find other ways to stretch ourselves as performers mm-hmm. that are made maybe in a less um, stunted way to be more progressive in this industry. I think it's important for us to be hiring people who are what they are playing to give the opportunities and because representation is so important. Right. You know? I mean, that's that's what it is. And To and, not turn down someone in a wheelchair for a romantic comedy. Well, and here's, here's the thing, too, is that... Um, I think the reason why people have, we're veering off into another aspect of this, where we always seem to go back mm-hmm. into casting lately, but I feel like such a big part of this is uh, Laverne Cox was saying how she wouldn't necessarily be opposed to cisgender people playing trans people if you would hire trans people to play straight people without making it a thing. Oh, definitely. Like, if it could go both ways, yeah. then that situation would be a non-situation, but if if it doesn't and it doesn't, then it's very discriminatory. Then you're That's just true. taking roles away from those people. Yeah. You know what I mean? So if you get a white actor to play a black character in a movie, but you don't get a black character to just be yeah. in a romantic comedy, then you're taking that role away from them. Which they'll still try to do. They'll try to write. It's it's like people will be like, well, I don't know how to write for a black person or a disabled person uh, right like for it's like, a person right for a person or, and that's what they say about women too you know men use that as a, an excuse for why they don't write female characters because they don't know how to write for women it's like you know what write something for a man and then switch the name if well you want. i mean and here's a novel idea why don't you bring women and people of color and people with disabilities into the writing room yeah <laughs> like those people should be in in the writing room there are tons of writers writers rooms are so overwhelmingly like white men and it's kind of like you have an entire you have so many other people to pull from who have different experiences that can color your script yeah you know and you're not you're not doing that yeah so um should we get a little bit back on track yes so i have i have here some forms of ableism if you want to kind of go through this because i feel like in some ways at least for some of these i know that i have personally been guilty of at least a couple of these yeah and i'm sure that most people have been because again society has kind of conditioned us to think of the disabled especially the obviously disabled physically disabled people Mm -hmm. in a very particular way Mm -hmm. so let's see some ways in which maybe we are participate participating in um, ableism so One form of ableism is failing to provide accessibility beyond wheelchair ramps. So I think we all kind of think of, well, if there are handicapped spaces and if there are wheelchair ramps, then we've covered our bases, right? Like everything is okay. But there's more than that. Like we need Braille. 
everywhere yeah. we go. We need seeing iDog accessibility. Do you want something interesting that I read tonight? Yeah. So I was telling Keegan that I read a book about Harriet Tubman with um, one of the kids that I nanny for, and he was asking when because we read something about the twenty dollar bill, how they want to do a Harriet Tubman twenty dollar bill. Love it. And he wanted to know more about like what what steps need to be taken for that to happen, yada, yada, yada. And I read that coming in 2020, first of all, it's going to be the 100th year um, since the suffragi- suffragist movement. Uh-huh. I always stumble over that word just while we're recording. No, I get it. Um, and so they're also going to be, that's probably when they're going to start making, they're going to make like Susan B. Anthony dollars. And um, again, like a lot of other like really famous feminist um, dollars. It's going to be really great. And that's when they're going to start infiltrating the Harriet Tubman. Also though, um, just to not to be this person, but we hope because the last time the Trump administration was asked about that, they were kind of like, we'll see. So yeah, well they said it is going to take a long time. I guess it's going to, it's even in 2020, it's when they're going to start, like creating it it's not when it's going to be done but they said that they're going to start making bills dollar bills more accessible for the blind by creating certain textures on different dollars and that they're playing with some of those ideas of how you can differentiate between the bills mm-hmm. by touch that is such a step in the I right that direction was a really yeah cool thing. that is such a step in the right direction yeah. so yeah i mean that that's one of the things it's like we fail to accommodate, we see disability in such a narrow way that we're like, okay, well, they're in a wheelchair, so we'll have um, wheelchair-accessible bathrooms and ramps, and, you know, we'll make our elevators larger to accommodate for wheelchairs. All of these things are great, but you leave out, uh, you know, blind people, people who need um, assistant dogs. Um, We don't have... I work in the movie industry doing, like, digital movies, and... We do them for movies all across the world in different languages. The United States is the only country that we do where it's legally obligated that closed captions be available. Oh, my God. I can't live without closed captions. Uh, I I put closed captions on all the time. Well, I mean, for me, and I I would never consider myself as being, like, a disabled person, but I I was You are hard of hearing. I'm hard of hearing. I was born with hearing loss. I'm supposed to wear hearing aids. When I go to movies, I wear the headphones. God Mm -hmm. bless that they have that, because there are a lot of theaters that don't have the volume loud enough that I can actually hear the dialogue. Mm Um, and so when I'm at home, like, I need closed captions. Right. I mean, and so we are excluding, I mean, I, I watched something after I saw A Quiet Place, that actress who's in A Quiet Place. Yes. She was talking about how it was such an incredible experience on set for her because she's deaf and the entire set learned sign language, yeah. cast and crew to and communicate. she actually felt more comfortable. Right. But she was also saying, you know, she's an actor and she can't go to movies because you know, closed captions aren't available for her, so she can't really watch movies. Yeah. And, and well, things and like in that. theaters, I wonder what that's, how that would work. Like, does she have to go to certain theaters? I imagine so. I mean, it, even if you just said certain showtimes will have closed captions for this particular movie. Yeah. You know, I think that that little gesture would go so far for people who are, you know, differently abled. Yeah. So, um, so that's one. And then I also... Like that phrasing so much better differently differently abled I like it too I like it much better too and then this is one I didn't even think of but like recording devices for lectures so Mm -hmm. if you are blind you can still go to college get an education and not miss out on your professor's lectures because you can listen to the lecture back after it's been recorded yeah or have it be like transcribed in some way 
So yeah. You can read it if you're deaf. Yeah, I mean, and I didn't think about it on this level, but um, I also copied, and this is from a, a Mike article by Julie Zellinger, or Zeilinger, Zeilinger. Um, Though accessibility is certainly a matter of convenience and equity, a lack of accessible resources can impact the very well-being of people with disabilities. Individuals with disabilities have reported not being able to receive health care because mm-hmm. their providers' facilities weren't accessible, and one study found that women with disabilities particularly face increased difficulty mm-hmm. accessing reproductive health care. Yep. Well, and it is interesting because we think of disabilities, too, as being mostly things that are tangible to us, like sight, sound, walking. But then there are people that have, like, autoimmune diseases. Right. And things like that that are a little bit more invisible. Right. Where I, I was reading another article where they were talking about how, like, there are people out there who need to take more days off work and they hear things like, well, you don't look sick. Right. Or will get chastised for mm-hmm. having, because they have certain doctor's appointments they have right. to make. Yeah. I have instead that- of instead of looking at the quality of work and the performance and how much they put into their job, you can't always look at it at a 40 to 60 hour mm-hmm. week yeah, time and, scale. And that's one of the, because um, I have six here of, forms of ableism, and that is one that is listed here, which is assuming disability is always visible. Because you could have, um, you know, a mental disability that maybe won't be uh, visible, or a a developmental disability, or just a mental illness is oftentimes not visible, but it's still debilitating. Yeah, and and people don't tend to have, I mean, we spoke about this when we we did our... um, mental health awareness episode where, you know, because it's not visible that people don't take it as seriously. Like, you know, if I were to say, oh, my my mom is sick in the hospital, you know, she, you know, is sick with this whatever cancer. And, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. Mm-hmm. For what can I do? How can I help? But if I were to say, oh, you know, my mom's hospitalized, she was really depressed and she just really needs the help she needs. There's a different response to that. It's right. pitying. It's, it's different. Well, you know? and I think, and that's something else that we can talk about, That's it's, it revolves around language. Um, yeah, okay, here's, here's one. Using ableist language. So, you know, using the R word, for example, is one mm. that we all know. Many adamantly uh, defend their use of these terms. But this personal defense, this is from that article, fails to recognize that ableist language is not about the words themselves so much as what their usage suggests the speaker feels about the individuals they yeah, represent. Exactly. Well, it's it to me it's similar as like the N-word where like even if they're it's not demeaning. meaning it in a racist way necessarily what they are conveying is incredibly racist. Well, I mean and it's if, if you are saying and, and it's the same way that people would used to say, I know whenever I was in like middle school and growing up, people used to say gay oh, as a yeah. negative. Yeah. If you are using the R word or any of these other words as a negative, it, even if you don't believe you're being I hear malicious. say it yeah, a lot. Yeah, even it's if, so upsetting. Yeah, even if you don't think that you're being malicious, if you're saying these There's things... There's other words to use, people. We don't need to use words that are associated with, pe- with things that people legitimately go through and struggle with. It's so insensitive. Yeah, I agree. So that's one of those things. And I think kind of depressed, when we start taking these words, like... Um, mental health words and using them in a very flippant manner, it takes their power away. So if you were to say, like, my mom's been hospitalized because her depression's really bad, it makes people say, like, oh, well, I've been depressed and I'm fine. Mm -hmm. You know, and so she should just... what would you say? She should just buck up and be okay. But then what would you say? 
What do you mean? It, if you were telling someone that your mom's in the hospital, no, no, no. If your mom's you really depressed, then yeah, that's what you say. Yeah. But it takes like for other because we've used it and abused that word so flippantly. Yeah. It makes other people feel like that's what word's not powerful. It doesn't mean anything. Right. It's not the same as if she had cancer. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I you know, just today I'm working on like. I'm not going to get into all that, but I was basically trying to explain that, like, I was hospitalized and someone had, like, kicked me out of my apartment, and if I were to say I was in treatment for an eating disorder, that gets a very different response than me saying I was sick and hospitalized, right? and they kicked me out of my apartment. It does, yeah, it does, because different words have different power based on the social stigma that we've created. And someone will latch on to the fact that I said eating disorder and be thinking about that while they're talking to me, rather than the actual thing that I'm trying to convey. Right, yeah. Um, So this third one, or fourth one, I am guilty of. This is the one I am most guilty of on this list, and it is able-bodied people failing to check their privilege. Oh yeah. Well, because we, it hasn't been broadcast. I feel like as um, as some of the other like privileges have been, uh-huh. and it needs to be more broadcasted. That like we take advantage of the ways that our bodies work, and I think that by us even having this episode, it's maybe bringing up some thoughts in people that, and definitely in me, to start checking my able body. Absolutely, privilege. absolutely. But it's not something that I thought of before because it does. It isn't something that is mentioned on a day to day basis as it should be. Well, I think that this society has kind of conditioned us to believe that able bo- that um, differently abled people should strive to be like abled body people. Yeah. So we don't see it as privilege in that way. It's the same way that white privilege works. It's yeah. like something that you have really have to recognize and check in yourself. Um, so from that article, it says, it may not seem like a big deal in the moment, but able-bodied individuals fail to recognize the privilege of having access to every and any space accessible. Yeah. Like, we have access to everything because it was created for, for us. us. And so we will, for instance, like, use the handicapped bathroom. Yeah. You know, because we're just like, what's the big deal? Yeah. You know, but it wasn't created for us. And no. should somebody come in who needs to use that space, Yeah, we've not checked ourselves, you know? We've decided to use it anyway. Yeah, that would piss me off. Yeah, I mean, it would. Like, if you were just like, this is the only space I can go to, you have all these other stalls, and you're choosing to use this one. Okay, so the next one is, assuming people with disabilities have no autonomy. Yeah. Don't make assumptions regarding what a disabled person does or does not need help with. Mm -hmm. They're autonomous human beings capable of doing for themselves and capable of asking for help if they need it. Yeah. So, and and that's something that I feel like is just we should we should know so easily because we don't ask just random people if they need help with things. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like yeah. we shouldn't assume that these people are incapable of asking. But for help again, if they need I think it. it's such a tricky thing because for it's us, like you want to be nice. You're and trying to be helpful. Like it definitely comes from a mm-hmm. positive place. But again, it's one of those things that if I were disabled, it would piss me off that yeah. like you assume that I cannot do for myself or like that I don't want to do for myself. Like, maybe I do. Yeah. Um, Okay, here's the last one, and then we can move on. Feeling entitled to know how people became disabled. Oh, yeah. You know, and again, I don't think that this is necessarily coming from a place of, like, ill will. No, it's a place of curiosity. Yeah. For the most part, I would say. Or, um, 
I've heard differing opinions from several disabled people when I was doing my research about their feelings uh, about children coming and asking them yeah. about what's going on with I them. I think that would really depend on the person. I think it depends on the person. Uh, this person kind of said, this frequently occurs among young children whose parents allow them to ask people with disabilities what happened to them, mm-hmm. presumably because they believe the answer will provide a quote-unquote social lesson that underscores yeah. the importance of tolerance and accepting differences. In actuality, allowing children to do so just teaches them that they are entitled to demand explanation and justification from everyone who's different than them. It's not our job to educate anyone, children or adults. Everyone has the right to go about their day without being accosted. I think that's... I I didn't know that you were coming at it from a place of parents or adults making a child. I think that if a child on their own is inquisitive, that... People, I mean, I've heard kids ask me things like when I had short hair, a uh-huh. kid came up, are you a boy or a girl? You yeah. know, and it's like, whatever. I know the parents weren't like, go ask her if she's a boy or a girl. Well, and I don't think you that know? that's what this person's saying either. But they're, um, but they're encouraging it in some way. Or I can say as a person of color, definitely it wasn't encouraged for little girls. I remember distinctly, and I'll tell the story really quickly. Like, I remember distinctly being at church and one of the little white girls at church came up and was just like, I had hair grease in my hair. And she was like, what? Like, what do you have in your hair? Like, what is that? Why? Yeah. You know? And her mom just kind of came over and was like, you know, it it was... I could tell that it didn't come from... And I was young. Like, I was probably, like, six or seven. And I can tell it didn't come from a place of ill will at all. But it does kind of make you feel like a curiosity. What did the mom say? She kind of crouched down next to her and was like, well, um, her hair is is different than yours and it like needs different stuff and it, they, you know, but she wasn't talking to me. She was talking to her daughter. Why is she explaining? Why couldn't you have said it? Right. It was kind of like I was a diorama. Like I was, you know, and like they were looking at me as if I was. Here's a museum exhibit. Right. Let me explain what you see here, And what you see here is hair grease and what you see here (laughs) is different hairstyle than you or different... And so if I understand had, that. If you had just been able to reply, I feel like that would have made a very different right. story. Right. And I also do believe, I do believe, you know, the person I talked to today has a different, uh, I talk about today has a different outlook on children yeah. being curious like that. So I, I think it does vary from person to person, but I also do believe that you need to be sensitive yeah. of that and maybe don't, uh, even if it's your child. Maybe just be very conscious if your child runs over and is like, why are you in that chair of engaging with the person in the chair? And how you engage with them. And maybe don't, and don't talk for the person. I think that's really important. If your child starts to get out of line, then you go, I'm so sorry. And you pull your child away. But don't go, oh, don't, don't, don't them don't do that right, you know, right. there's don't act in in extreme ways on either side I you feel. should behave the way that you would behave if your child was inappropriate with any other person yeah exactly you know what i mean yeah um, i wanted to bring up really quick uh, yeah. the wage gap with yeah. people with disabilities and so as we as most of us know because it's a feminist podcast women earn 77 cents on the dollar to men and I read that 8 to 10%, there's an 8 to 10% wage gap that exists in the U.S. for those with disabilities. In a very extreme case, Goodwill made news last year when it was, when it was revealed that it pays workers far below minimum wage at 22 cents for an hour of work. What? Yeah. Everyone? It, it just said Goodwill. I don't know if it was a specific one, but it said that they had... I, I would assume How that, that it was legal? for... 
the disabled? I don't know. And I and I didn't go into it too far because I, I did a lot of research on my Well, person. I mean, again, I <laughs> feel like... But I was like just kind of like, the fuck? I have a cousin who is... He has Down syndrome among some other disabilities. And he, they... I mean, he has gotten, quote-unquote, jobs. And I do feel like they almost take the stance that they're like... It's well, charity? they should have a pat on the back because they gave right. him a job. Right. They're like, well, yeah. at least we gave him a job yeah. or whatever. So they can kind of get away with everything. But I'm like, but you're also getting really cheap labor because it's not like he's not working for you. Yeah. It's, you know, it's so it's, it's pretty shitty. It's yeah. really fucked up. Can I talk about my person? Yes, please. Ugh, Keegan ruined it. I, well, I kind of ruined it. I put my <laughs> notebook down. She saw who I'm doing. It's not a surprise. And I. I was going to act surprised, but never no, mind. I, I don't <laughs> allow that. So. Before I say who I'm going to talk about, I struggled with this because this person is so well-known that I don't want people to, like, roll their eyes and be like, well, we know this story. But the more that I read about this person, the more I learned and the narrative of this person and the way that they wanted their story to be told is not the story that is told Mm -hmm. to us when we are kids. I am talking today about Helen Keller. Yay! So. Hold on. Fun fact. I was in The Miracle Worker when I was, like... 17. And you played Anne Sullivan. No, I played the slave in the movie. Conti- or in the show. Continue. <laughs> Proceed. Wait, the slave? Oh, in There's the There's pl- one slave in the play. And you the stage played the version. slave? Yes. Keegan. I was like 17. Keegan. Yes. That's so upsetting. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Welcome to my life. Yeah. In, in Missouri Community Theater. Wow. Proceed. <laughs> Did you play slaves a lot? No, actually. There weren't a lot of slave roles. Or like... Or, like, really stereotypically, like... Well, yeah, because so many plays are so... I, I had... So okay, racist. we're going off. We can cut this out. It's fine. I want to know but, this. No, it's not that they're racist, but it's like... Well, I mean, maybe a little bit. But, like, I just had an audition for a play and almost got it. Like, it was down between me and someone else. Oh, it's you a, didn't it's get a good it? play, no. But the reason why I didn't get it, I'm almost positive, is because it takes place in Kansas in the 1950s. And oh. it's like... Yes, it would have been fine. Like, you can do colorblind casting, but it's, again, it's kind of this, like, subconscious thing of being, like, well, but a white person makes more sense. Yeah. So when you're doing theater, so much of it is like that. It's like, if you're doing a family, they don't want to cast you with a white, with white parents, so that cuts down on your ability to be cast. If you're doing a period piece, that cuts down on your ability to be cast. You really have to be cast in something that's, like, contemporary or something meant for brown people. Other than that, it's kind of like you can't work. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, sorry. Oh, God. Proceed. Helen Keller. Helen Keller. So, Helen was born on June 27th, 1880 in Tuscumbia. 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 I don't know. Alabama. Correct us. What's it called? Alabama. Tuscumbia. Do you live there? Listener, let us know. Let's just move past that. Um, At 19 months, she contracted an unknown illness, which now they believe it was either like scarlet fever or meningitis. But basically, this illness left her blind and deaf. And she, I guess, was like a really like very smart child and like started to kind of teach herself to speak at a very young age but like she's still 19 months old she's not she's a little bit over a year and a half Mm -hmm. so her she has little to no vocabulary she already can't really convey her needs and then all of a sudden her two main sensories are taken away from her 
So when Helen was six, her mom reached out to find a teacher that could help Helen. She was referred to Perkins School of the Blind and thus began her 49-year relationship with Ann Sullivan. And Ann Sullivan would also be a good disabled lady to do. Yes, because she also is visually impaired. Yeah. So if you notice, I just went from 19 months to six years old. There's a lot in between, and I'm choosing purposefully to skip a lot of this stuff because, as I'm going to explain later, if you don't know a lot of that story, I encourage you to go back and read it. But we're not going to focus on the story that's been told over and over again. We're going to do the narrative of the story that Helen Keller wanted people to focus on. So, in 1894, Keller and Sullivan moved to New York to attend the Wright Humison School for the Deaf to improve her speaking ability. So, this is 18... 18, yeah, oh, so she's 14 years old. In 1900, she furthered her education at Radcliffe College of Harvard University. So here's a fun fact. She was really good friends with Mark Twain, and he introduced her to this standard oil magnet guy, Henry Huddleston Rogers, who, along with his wife, paid for her tuition for her school. So she was like, I'm going to go to Harvard. And they were like, you can't go to Harvard. You can't. Like, you're blind and deaf. And she's like, fucking watch me. <laughs> so when... She was 24 years old in 1904. Helen graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree and was the first disabled person to achieve this. Was the first blind and deaf person to achieve this. Fucking huge. So, before she graduated, Helen had already published two books. And I think she would publish some stuff from when she was younger after she kind of became um, more of a name. Mm -hmm. But before she graduated college, she had published The Story of My Life in 1902, which is an autobiography, and Optimism in 1903. After college, Helen became an active member of the Socialist Party, and she claims that the newspaper columnists who would, like, praise her for her courage and intelligence were, like, suddenly blacklisting her from, like, publishing any of her stuff because she was involved with the Socialist Party. Mm -hmm. And so she was just kind of like, uh-huh, yeah, I'm real inspiring, you won't publish my stuff now. So, within months of joining the Socialist Party, she was friends with the movement's leaders and was traveling the country giving lectures on socialism. She traveled 25 countries just at this time, just giving lectures surrounding the socialist movement. Her involvement in socialism didn't make her very popular. In fact, and I got proof of this, the FBI was monitoring her. You can yeah, actually, they tended to do that. Yeah, there was there's a website where you can go and look at all the documents where they're like highlighting Helen's name and like it's crazy. I so, think it's so weird the way that we idolize the FBI and it's like the really CIA. Weird. There's I'm a like, new TV show coming out just called FBI, which I'm like real original. They're so shady, but anyway, yeah. it doesn't matter. Continue. So. Every time her name was mentioned in any leftist media, they, like, took note. And then they would, like, scour her, like, childhood speeches and writings and everything and, like, make note of everything. And I think Helen, like, was pretty aware of her unpopularity and kind of capitalized on that. So Helen's main focus in her life was visibility for disabled people's rights. Helen knew that she was in the 1% of disabled people who was fortunate enough to get the help and education she had and felt that in order to help the other 99%, she had to learn about how they lived. She did a lot of traveling. And, you know, as we say, as someone with privilege, you can never fully understand what other people's lives were like, but you can do your best to try to understand and still fight for those people's rights the best that you can. And Helen found that many people who were disabled had been had been in avoidable industrial accidents, like at work. Mm-hmm. And this was at a time where there was no lawsuits, there was no safety. And a lot of these companies were owned by these like really rich people who didn't yes. want to pay for safety. Yeah. And she was she was seeing this work because a lot of the disabled are older. 
especially around this time, it was it was like accidents that had happened. And she's yeah. like, this is avoidable. Right. Like Products we, of yeah, we factory need, accidents. Yeah. And then once they were fired, there was no security for them. They were in poverty and out of work and homeless. And oh, capitalism. Am I right? So exactly. I'm sure I'm sure Helen, with her socialist little heart, ca- I mean, this is, I mean, these are products of capitalism. Like yes. you make as much money as you can and doing that, it's like it doesn't make sense to have unions. It doesn't make sense to have yeah. protections for workers. So they're going to get hurt in because these factories. Because you're looking after your own. Yeah, and then you cut them off because yeah. you, you don't want to pay them off. You can't get any use out of them anymore. Exactly. So good luck with your life. Yeah. yeah. So they so they were left in complete poverty. In 1916, in an interview, she was asked what she was most committed to. Her response was revolution. Hey, girl. Hey, girl. Helen wanted equal rights for everyone, so she became active in the suffragist movement and became an advocate for birth control. I feel like so much of our, like, conversations go back to, like, Margaret Sanger and Alice Paul and all that kind of stuff. I she- Yeah, I deliberately, there were so many on the list of, like, badass handicapped ladies Yeah, uh, that I, so many of them were suffragettes, though, and I was yeah. like, don't do it, Keegan. I know, I Stay know. Away. I didn't even mean to, you guys, no, I no. swear. So she was also an advocate for education and began writing satirical articles about misogyny. One of her most popular, and you should go online and Google this article because there's a video that kind of like summarizes it and it's like a cute little like old-fashioned cartoon that goes with it and this article is called put your husband in the kitchen (laughs) and so i love her yeah one of this excerpt says i am tempted to think that the perplexed businessman might discover a possible solution of his troubles if he would spend a few days in his wife's kitchen (laughs) so in germany in 1933 these german students were going to burn her books so she wrote to them saying History has taught you nothing if you think you can kill ideas. Tyrants have tried to do that often before, and the ideas have risen up in their might and destroyed them. She ended the letter by saying, Do not imagine that your barbituaries to the Jews are unknown here. Better were it for you to have a millstone hung around your neck and sink into the sea than be hated and despised of all men. God, she's amazing. Right? God, girl, get it. Yes. She was just so... She just stood up for everybody. I think because she had so much discrimination that she just wanted to um, be an advocate for as many different people as she could. Right, because I think, you know, the story that we do learn in The Miracle Worker, outside of the fact that both her and Annie Sullivan are incredible people, is that she needed an advocate. Yes. You know, like, that's what she needed. She had people trying to, like, control her, and that's not what she needed. She needed somebody in her corner. Can I tell you something really interesting that I read from the kids' book that I read The Kid That I Nanny For? So I I told you that I read the Harriet Tubman book today. We read the mm-hmm. Helen Keller book a few days ago, and I was like, "You're gonna help me research." And she, when she, before she had Anne Sullivan as her teacher, she would try. She figured out certain cues to like uh, get the attention of her mom and dad. And one of them was if she shivered, that meant she wanted ice cream. Aww, which I think is the funniest That's kind thing of adorable. ever. I know she was like acting like she's cold to ask for ice cream. So. Helen did not like the narrative of her life that society perpetuated, as I said. The construction of the iconic Helen Keller has resulted in numerous essays and books written by those who, and I'm not saying this as myself, this is what I read in an article, by those who grew up resentful of her. There are people, I feel, from what I've read, that maybe felt that she was very privileged and that wrote mm-hmm. a certain and and perpetuated a certain narrative of her because of that. And I'm maybe not, didn't like what she grew up to became. So it yeah. made it easier to focus on the little kid. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there were people that thought that she did all of this to, like, be famous and pulled through with a smile on her face, which is unlike the majority of the disabled who endure, like, high rates of poverty, homelessness, discrimination, well, I mean, and, and there's, brutality. There's so no doubting. Like, the, so it's like, why does she get all of right, this? Right, there's no doubting the privilege that Helen Keller came up in. Like, she, yeah. she did come from a highly privileged, wealthy family. Well, yeah, who could call upon these teachers and right. help mold her life. Like, she realized... But she did good her, with her privilege. She really yeah. did. And so... And I and she, I think she realized this as well. Like, I, I don't think she was a hateful, spiteful person and understood why there was a certain narrative about her. Mm-hmm. I think that she just wanted to be seen as even more. Yeah. So, images of her childhood continue to be reinforced everywhere from books, plays, movies, school curriculums. I'll get back to you on that. And they all perpetuate the narrative we all know and leave out her radical politics. In well, that's so much of everything. I mean, I is. feel like we do the same thing with Martin Luther King. Oh, yeah. Like, we tend to whitewash and, like, very present much. a very shiny, clean image of these people we want to idolize. Because it helps with the moral of the story that we're trying to teach. Right. You know, so, but that's why I'm so glad that I, I did more reading. In her life, Helen wrote 12 published books and several articles. She visited 35 countries from the year 1946 to 1957. In 1915, she and George A. Kessler found the Helen Keller Organization, which is devoted to research of vision, health, and nutrition. She helped found the ACLU. She was friends with many famous figures and met all the presidents that were active during the time of like her popularity mm-hmm. through the end of her life. Helen suffered a series of strokes in 1961 and spent the last years of her life at home. On September 14, 1964, President Lyndon B. Johnson awarded her the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In 1965, she was elected the national she was elected into the National Women's Hall of Fame at the New York World Fair. Helen died on June 1, 1968, at her home, Arkin Ridge, located in Easton, Connecticut. She lived for a long time. She lived for a long time. She was a few weeks short of her 88th birthday. Wow. So, she was cremated and her ashes were placed next to her companions, Ann Sullivan and Polly Thompson. Polly Thompson took over after Ann Sullivan passed away. She is buried at the Washington National Cathedral in D.C., So now we're going to talk a little bit about Helen Keller in school curriculums today. This is like pretty breaking news. This came out like a day ago that Texas voted to cut Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller from school history curriculums. Oh, I heard that. Yeah, I did hear about that. I'm going to tell you about it. So Texas Board of Education voted to remove uh, Hillary Clinton and Helen Keller, along with several other historical figures from the kindergarten through 12th grade curriculum. And this was recommended by the Texas Education Agency and several members, it's like 15 people, and several members said there were too many historical figures for Texas kids to remember. Okay, so let's get rid of some of the women and not the, like, 155,000 men in yeah. that book. Yeah, well, and that's the thing, is that they're still going to talk about Bill Clinton. They've said that. But they're totally xing out Hillary Clinton. And then the other thing is that it's like, you're really not showing much faith in your child. Like, that's not true at all, and I've seen that Children have the true. ability to absorb so much information. And they will pick and choose the ones that mean the most to them, and that's what will help them later in life. Like, I learned about so many historical figures, and I have a handful that I've kept really close to my heart growing into adulthood. And I think that the more information that you give kids, the more they can grab and choose from to be well-formed 
adults later on. They can pick and choose what means the most to them and let that lead them. So according to the rubric for inclusion, Clinton scored 5 out of 21 points, while Keller achieved 7 out of 20. (laughs) 7? Sorry, I almost like choked on my own spit. out of 20. Oh my god. Moses and Christian values remain. Shut your fucking face. Yep. In a school textbook. Yep. Oh my god, I'm gonna Yes. I'm gonna. So that's kind of what I have. I forgot that I have this other kind of piece of paper when talking about um the narrative that she had a little bit. So in this guy, Joseph Lash's biography of Helen Keller, this is what he says. She needed to see the world as a contest between good and evil. Her imagination cut off by blindness and deafness from many signals that brute experience sends most of us counseling caution, compromise, grayness, instead of black and white, lent itself to dichotomies. If she kept some grip on reality, it was because of her teacher, a woman of practical common sense, which is basically saying that she can't do anything for herself, that she would be nothing. I mean, she, who knows what would have happened if she had never gotten the teachings that she had, but they are they're perpetuating the narrative that she would be nothing and not right. have a thought in her head they were moving have it weren't have been for other people who were more abled to show her yeah they're removing her autonomy they're yes. saying and granted who knows who she would have been without Annie Sullivan but right to but, say that she wouldn't that she would have been nothing or that that any part of her spirit or like who she is is because of other people's that teaching. she would be so cut and dry to be black right. and white yeah like good evil you yeah. know i believe that you know language is important to perpetuate ideas to to learn to grow and to teach other people but the way that helen was as an advocate and as a very political being i don't think is necessarily was necessarily taught. I think that was in her. That were, there was something right. in her, and all of that happened for a reason to let that out. Because right, she was given was that, tools. Is exactly, what she was given. Because yeah. I believe that that's something that's always in you. Yeah, agree. that's not anything that I feel that anybody else forced her to believe or drilled no. into her. I think that she had that spirit in her. Yeah, just like we all, you know, have. You know, we're really good public speakers or we're really good writers. You know, there's something that was in her already, and she was given the tools to be able to live out that life that she maybe never would have been able to do without her teachers as far as it comes to speaking. Right, but they don't get credit for her will. Yes. Yeah. If you don't know about Helen Keller's childhood, I do still encourage you to watch The Miracle Worker, to do your reading and your research because it is miraculous and amazing. And she is a badass little kid as well as a badass woman. But I hope that you all took away something new or at least something, a a new way of thinking about Helen Keller than just the regular narrative. Yeah, agree. The the also thing that's interesting to me, did I say the also thing? You did, it's It's fine. fine. Um, Helen Keller has kind of become, like, the butt of jokes. Yeah. And it's kind of, like, really upsetting. Well, I mean... And I get it, because, like, I know, like, it's in Apples to Apples, and there's things like that where, like, they have a Helen it's Keller in, card. It's in, um, Cards Against Humanity. But yeah. as, as is all of those things that are bad taste jokes, you know? Yeah, like, but I think there's we like have Hitler, to... There's, like, Hitler, all of those things that are not necessarily funny are are 
in yeah. that deck of and cards. I, so and I think that in, that's the point of it. Yeah, exactly. There are things where you're laughing because you're like, that is the worst thing I've ever heard, and I can't believe I'm laughing. But I do think that it's important to. Check I do think yourself. it's 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 definitely ableist to yeah. turn um, because very often what people are. Well, and they usually dumb it down to Helen Keller being stupid. Well, yeah, because very often it's ableist because what it is is you, what you are laughing at is her disability. Yeah. Like you're you're laughing at the fact that she's blind and deaf. That is the I, butt of that joke. I heard a joke the other day, and I don't remember what it was exactly, which is not bothering me at all. But basically, the the punchline of it was just her making like sounds like yes. not real words and like that it just doesn't make any sense like that's not even who she was as a person well if you watch or read the play the miracle worker that is yeah. that is how it's presented because she, she i mean she had no reference point well, like she couldn't form words right no she couldn't but but it's not but it's not Again, something it's, to laugh at. It's, no. She couldn't form words because she had no reference point for being able yeah. to speak. And it's interesting because in the book that I read, The Kid That I Take Care Of, it said, close your eyes and cover your ears. And, and like, sit with that for a little bit. And I, I was reading that, and I didn't expect him to actually do it. And I look over, and he's, like, covering his ears and closing his eyes. I'm like, that's kind of scary, isn't it? And he's like, yeah. This is the kid who gets scared of, like, when the TV is just black. Right. Like, you know, it, imagine living your entire life like that. That's right. not something that's funny. That's something that's horrifying and scary. And the fact that she was able to move past that is unbelievable. The fact that she was able to move past that in a society where we still aren't at a place where we understand how to deal nope. with people. That's why what Annie Sullivan did was so incredible is because her teachers before that didn't know what to do. They expected her to behave like a regular child. Well, and but she, she and they saw her as a troubled child right. because she she would scream and yell and like because she couldn't she couldn't like, understand. She couldn't like, communicate. Are you fucking kidding me? She couldn't of communicate. She did. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. If so, you cannot communicate, like yeah. how frustrating to yeah. not be able to get across what you want to get across to people. Yeah. Like that's so frustrating and difficult. Um. Well, thank you for sharing that and for thank sharing, you. like, some things that happened kind of, like, later on in her life because I do feel like there are so many things that happen early on. I'm sure there's even more. I want to know more about her personal life and, like, know if there was ever any, like, love interest in her life. Like, I'm I sure. feel like there's stuff that, like, we just don't know about. Because, of course. Because, again, we, we play up this whole, like, disabled, like, asexual being kind of thing. I would be... Interested to kind of like well, do a, a little, dig a little deeper. That's the thing we do with a lot of disabled people. We kind yeah. of like we view them as asexual beings that yeah. only exist in this realm of disability, yeah. and there's nothing outside of that. You I'm know, gonna, I'm gonna look into that. Yeah. So I want more alcohol. Okay, let's take a quick break. Hi guys, I'm Kales and I'm Allison, and we host Novel Predictions, a podcast where we laugh at ourselves and each other as one of us tries to predict the ending of a book the other has already read. Essentially, one of us is torturing the other. It's not torture. It's hilarious as we try and predict the story from some popular novels like Aragon, Fault in Our Stars, and more. We read the beginning, we talk about the story, and we try not to give away how royally the newbie reader is screwing up the plot. So join us every other week for fun, ruthless reviews of popular novels. Subscribe and follow us on social media, and we invite you to read and laugh along. As we torture each other. It's not torture, seriously. Maybe a little. Okay, it's just a little. Thanks for listening, and keep making novel predictions. We really need a new outro. Okay, so. Yes! My person is, one, not very well-known, and two, I don't have that much about her. Okay. She passed away when she was 32, so there's really not a lot. 
she she was in the public eye for sure, but she was also Australian, so a lot of the information is not as prevalent here in the States. Yeah. So her name is Stella Young. Okay. So Stella was born on February 24th, 1982 in Stawell, Victoria in Australia. She was born with osteogenesis imperfecta, which I... Something about I've heard something, of that, but I don't really know. Like That sounds familiar, but I can't remember what it is. Something about it being called imperfecta oh, yeah, weirds me out. Um, yeah. But it's also known as brittle bone disease, mm. so her bones break very easily. But also yes. another aspect of it, like, did you ever watch Malcolm in the Middle? Yes. The youngest kid is his name Dewey or Yeah, Stewie or Dewey or yeah, something. Yeah, he has this disease. So if you look at pictures of him now, he's still roughly the same yeah. like size. Yeah. Um because that is one of the it's a genetic disorder and that's it's kind of one of the symptoms. Yeah. So it mainly affects the bones, they break easily. Yeah. And the severity may be mild to severe. Other symptoms may include blue tinge in the whites of the eyes, short height, loose joints, hearing loss, breathing problems, problems with teeth. So Stella was confined to a wheelchair basically her entire life. Yeah. And she gives this incredible TED Talk. This is what made me want to do this because she gives this incredible TED Talk. It's just like a 10-minute thing. I totally encourage you guys to look it up and watch it. Uh, if I can find some short clips of it, I'll put it on That'd our Instagram. But it is called, I'm Not Your Inspiration, Thank You Very Much. And I've seen this. she is so funny. Yeah. And she presents everything in such a witty and approachable way that it makes yeah. you just love her. Like, yeah. and, and it makes you absorb the information in a way that I don't think you would necessarily otherwise. Yeah. So, at the age of 14, she audited the accessibility of the main street businesses in her hometown. So, she was basically like, hey, I can't get in some of these buildings because they're not wheelchair accessible. Yeah. So, by the age of 14, she had kind of, it seems like to me, embraced the body she was in and was like ready to start fighting for the rights of the disabled, which is incredible. Um, She went on to get a bachelor's in journalism and public relations from Deakin University and a graduate diploma in education from the University of Melbourne. After graduating in 2004, she worked for a time as a secondary school teacher. Hmm. And she tells this awesome story in the TED Talk about how when she was in the school one time, like, teaching, and she's this, you know, small person in a wheelchair... And one of the students kind of, like, interrupted her and was like, when are you going to, like, when are you going to give your, like, motivational talk? Yeah. And she was like, what? And he, he's, she's like, I'm here to, like, teach you math or whatever. Yeah. And he was like, well, whenever a person in a wheelchair comes into school, they always give us a motivational talk. I mean, like, usually it's in the cafeteria or whatever. But, like, yeah. when When's are you going to start doing that? And she was like, it was then that I realized that people, like, equated disability with this kind of, like, idea that they're supposed to inspire you. Or they're, like, yeah, it's this weird, like... Well, and I, I did read about, like, fetishizing, too, which I don't think... That's not sexual fetishizing, but there is something, like, they get off on the motivation of other yes. people's, like, misfortune. I, I shouldn't say misfortunes because disability necessarily, I don't think, is a misfortune. But, like, that's how it's seen. So it's like, oh, right. if they can do it, I can yes. do it. And that's what you we're know? going to get to here. I mean, I'm skipping over some things, but... So she 
in her TED Talk, and even before her TED Talk, she kind of coined the phrase inspiration porn. That's the word I was like, right. I was trying to find the word why porn was in my head. Right, yes. Yeah. She she coined that phrase of like yeah. inspiration porn, which is basically like, it's very prevalent in our social media age yeah. of you see a guy, she gives the example of there's a poster of a guy swimming and he has his legs amputated and it's like the only disability is a bad attitude or, like, whatever. Or, like, Ugh. if she can do it, you can do it. Or yeah. whatever. And she said it, it so... It should be, like, they can do it, too, so shut the fuck up, Well, what she <laughs> says is that they're using their bodies to the best of their capacity. Like, they're not... There's nothing about them that we should be, like, oh, my gosh, that's so inspirational or, like, motivational. It's just they're using their bodies... To the best that they can, yeah. which is what everyone They're just does. Living their lives, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is what everybody does. And she says it so perfectly that she calls it inspiration porn because um, it's objectifying one group of people for the benefit of another group of people. It's true. To for our like pleasure or like it our... is you get like a high off of right. It and you yeah. feel you feel like a better person for having listened to that or having that poster on your wall. Right. It makes you feel superior. Right. And she when says it's not about the person. Right. And she says this which totally made me again like check my privilege. She yeah. says the purpose of these images is to inspire you, to motivate you, so that we can look at them and think, well, however bad my life is, it could be worse. I could Ugh. be that person, but what if you are that person? Yeah. So it's so demeaning and it's something that you know, again, it's embarrassing for me to think that I've not I mean, of course I've thought about my privilege as an able-bodied person and, and all of those things, but it's not as prevalent. It's not something that I really like thought of in the way of of course I've looked at these motivational videos and you know, Do you know it's the guy that doesn't you... have the arms and the legs and he's like really funny. He gave a TED talk too, it's really Oh no, I haven't seen that one. He yeah, he, his is pretty good too. But his it's definitely like super motivational and you're like, Yeah, like he's amazing. I mean, because at the end of the day, and even she says it their lives are difficult. Like, yeah. they, their lives are difficult, so we can look at them and, and be like, they are inspirational to us because they are living a life that's more difficult than our life. Right, but we have to check how we're feeling motivated for them, maybe? Well, and if you, like, listen to her TED Talk, which, again, I totally think everyone to. should do, she says, and this is what we were talking about earlier, it's not, did I make a note of this? She said, we are more disabled by the society that we live in mm-hmm. than by our bodies and our diagnoses. Preach. So so we think of we think of them as motivational, right? Like because we're like, you are able to live with this and, and I don't have to, and it must be such a trial and such a struggle for you. But it's like it's a struggle for them because we as a society haven't worked to normalize it. Yeah, That's we've made why it it's hard. It's really fucking difficult for yeah. them just to, to live like, a live. normal life. Like just yeah. to live a normal life. So I I really, like, I chose her even though there's not a lot to talk about with her because I feel like she's so well conveyed something that we miss. And I will say I looked into a lot of people for this episode. I think I kept I kept changing mm-hmm. who I wanted to do. I went through like three... And a very large list. Yeah, I went through like three people, um, other people who I'm sure we'll talk about later yeah. in other episodes. But I landed on her because... There is something about her that is so magnetic and unapologetic about who she is. And she was such an advocate for the rights of the disabled, the rights of women. She was completely outspoken about 
everything. Yeah. And, you know, she was kind of like a pioneer in so many ways. Yeah. So she went on to be a editor for a- the ABC's disability news and option website, Ramp Up, which I can't believe in Australia they even had one of those. We don't have one of those. Nope, we don't a- have one of those. A disability website. But uh, ABC did was forced to close it after it was defunded by the federal government. So mm. that there's a bummer there. But you can also go back. All this stuff is still archived. So yeah. you can still find it and read her articles, um, which are really great and insightful. She was an activist on issues including disability, gender equality, and education. She hosted eight seasons of a show called No Limits, which was Australia's first disability culture program. That was awesome. Yeah, and it aired on local TV stations around the country. Uh, she had eight a, seasons is a lot. It's a lot, yeah. And she had a one-woman show, Tales from the Crip, which I think is so funny. And she talks about <laughs> how... I think it's funny because she talks about how calling herself a crip made people so uncomfortable. Yeah, but that's probably like humorous to But her. to her, she found it empowering. And it yeah. was that way in which we talk about like reclaiming words Yeah, is to her using that word made her feel powerful. Right. And so she won the Best Newcomer Award in the 2014 Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Isn't it like, isn't it instead of Melbourne, it's like Melbourne? 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 Nope. Please tell us if we got that wrong. I'm sure we did. No, we did. But, like, it's spelled <laughs> Melbourne. Like, what do it you want is, from me? It is. Melbourne. Um, so that was in 2014. So she went to this comedy festival and did a one-woman show all about her experiences as, as a disabled person. Because she's so funny. Like, her natural timing and, like, charisma yeah. is so funny and engaging. So that was in 2014, and then later that year, in December, she died suddenly of a suspected aneurysm. Oh, my like, God. Like, I'm not even sure if it was related to yeah, her was, illness. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. I, I don't know, because there's really no information. Yeah. And it even says suspected aneurysm. Like, there's yeah. not a lot of information about what happened. It's like she died very suddenly. People weren't expecting it. She had... Um, appearances planned for, like, later that week. It wasn't like she was sick or anything. So she died very quickly. And in 2017, Young was inducted posthumously uh, onto the Victorian Honor Roll of Women in recognition for her work as a journalist, comedian, feminist, and fierce disability activist. I love it. Yeah, she's incredible. We you, Stella. Definitely look into her more. There was so much more about her that I just couldn't find a way to, like weave into talking about her. I hear you. Like, she's... There's, like, a whole page online that are just quotes. Yeah. <laughs> and just, like, amazing quotes where she talks about, like, uh, poverty rates among the disabled and how many disabled Australians are living below the poverty line and, like, the way that the National Health Service or whatever is taking away um, help for people with disabilities. Like, she just basically never shut up about these issues. Yeah. And, and that's what we need. And when she died, um, her family asked that people donate money to domestic violence center, a, yeah. a domestic violence center, because she was also really passionate about that. Like, she basically devoted her life to all of these causes. Yeah. And being... I mean, that's very similar to what Helen Keller did, too. Yeah. They, they're both these people where it's like, it doesn't just stop with me. Right. There are so many things, like, yes, I want the thing that affects me to be fixed, but let's let's put everything under the microscope and yeah. see what we can do, because, like, one person can make that amount of change. Yeah. And just con- by never shutting up about it. Yeah. And that's the thing, is that I've talked to my friends, like, the way that I experience life is different 
now since I started this podcast even. Of course. Because I see everything through a certain lens. And Mm -hmm. once you start seeing things through a certain lens, everything that you do is like... I can't stop it now. Of course not. Yeah, because it, it's part of your worldview. It's yeah, part of who you are you as a human being. Yeah, and you can't shut up about it. Yeah. Because it's, it's that in front of your face all the time, and you, you can't not see the injustices happening. Yeah. And that's how that... In, and her life is was a big injustice. Yeah. And so, of course, she's seeing all these other things that are happening, and she's like, I need to make the biggest difference because of who I am and the the platform she was given. And, you know, she had a very short life. I'm not saying she knew she would live a short life. But she didn't. damn, did she jam-pack a lot Yeah, she didn't. Life. There's actually something really cool, or cool and also incredibly sad. Um, she wrote a letter to herself at 80. Oh, and people it. posted it on the internet after she passed away. And she says that she's like, I, I don't expect to live a short life, but... If I do, you know, so she definitely didn't anticipate that. But if you are wondering what are the ways in which maybe I am participating in ableism and I don't recognize it, read some stuff from Stella Young, watch this TED Talk. Like, she breaks it down in ways that are so relatable. Yeah. And she just seems like your friend. And you're like, oh my gosh, I would never want to do that to my friend. I would never want to, like, make them feel like that, you know, Definitely, just look into that. Just start yeah. looking at people with disabilities as your friend. Yeah. You know, anyone who would be, you would know. You know. Yeah. Well, and Keegan, I think that there are things that you and I can do with this show too to continue to talk about these people, not just because it's Disability Awareness Month, but just to look at them as the feminist and amazing, powerful women and people that they right. are. Yeah. And I think that that's something that we've started doing. Um, you know, we keep racial issues and sexual violence issues very much in the forefronts of our minds. Yeah. And I think that adding disability uh, rights and advocates is an important thing for us to remember, too. And I think that's right. something that we can do to help in some way. Absolutely. Absolutely. I remember whenever we were going to... Um the women's marches and just marches in general, there were, like, signs that said, like, the future will be accessible. Mm-hmm. You know, because because it should be. Because there's no reason why, why it shouldn't be. And we should all be working uh, as a part of a whole to make that happen. Yeah. So... I know that I didn't have a lot to say about Stella. But I think what you said was really poignant and great. But I just wanted to bring her to people's attention because, like, I didn't even know who she was. And she just kind of, like, grabbed on to my heart. Like, the second I watched that TED Talk, I was like, I have to, like, talk about her because she's just so um, incredible. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. I enjoyed doing this one. I really enjoyed this. Me too. Anytime that I can do research on like a specific person and, or like a really specific topic and I feel like I can walk away smarter and, um, better educated and a better feminist, it makes me feel really good. Yeah. I feel the same way. I definitely feel like I learned some things Mm -hmm. during this episode and, uh, in the research for this episode and that feels great. Like, it feels great to know that, like, I'm I'm still growing and I'm educating myself. And we want you guys to know that, too. Like, we're still... We sit here every week and we, like, talk to you guys in a closet by ourselves with a microphone. But 
we're still sitting around like learning things. Of course. You know. But I think that we're never going to be like even the experts are never going to be experts on everything. Right. We can always be learning more. And I'm sorry if we've ever spoken to you and you're like, I know this already, guys. You're so dumb. But it's like, you know, there are a lot of things out there that we just don't know about. Right. Everyone has different life experience and different worldviews. And some things maybe just have never come into my orbit in that way. And um I think the point is that we're trying, and we hope that you guys are trying, and that's why you're here. You're here to listen and and try (laughs) with us. Oh, you guys. You know, I've thoroughly enjoyed tonight. Me too. And we have another one to go tonight, Keegan and I. Mm Mm-hmm. So... With that exhausted statement. Wait, review, subscribe. (laughs) Oh, that's right. And then we. (laughs) And then, wait. Okay. If you have any, if you have any disabled people, women that you want to, like, to bring to our attention. Of course. You can email us at neighborhoodfeminist at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at angryneighborhoodfeminist. You can tweet at us on Twitter at yampfpodcast, Y-A-N-F podcast. Thank you, Keegan. Mm -hmm. Um, find us on Radio Public. Find us on Spotify. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. It really means the fucking world to us and our business and our lives and everything. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so I guess with that being said, (laughs) we encourage you to rage on. Bye. Bye, ragers. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.